The following contains plot spoilers, and the comments and opinions expressed herein are for entertainment and commentary purposes only and may not reflect the actual opinions of Geeks Radio or the individual hosts. So don't get mad, it's just a show. Sometimes, when a man begins a podcast, the podcast begins the man. This is Totally Super. Hi, welcome to Totally Super, where we review every superhero movie ever made. My name is Justin. And my name is Arthur. And so, before we start, uh, I just want to put it out there, because it could come up at any time. Um, I got a new puppy. Um, and so, if my voice sounds different, I'm not on my awesome condenser mic I usually record on. If you're gnawing in the background, that's him chewing on a big red stick. Um, uh, Arthur asked me before the podcast started what breed he was, and I think he's half demon and half Red Bull because he keeps me up all night. Uh, so if you will just forgive that, uh, occasionally you might hear me go, Wesley, because he is, of course, named after Wesley Wyndham Price from Buffy. My son wants him to be named after Wesley Crusher from Star Trek, and I said, shut up, Wesley. Um, and so that's where we are. But that's not what we're here to talk about today, Arthur. Uh, do you know what we are here to talk about? Are we here to... Well, no, I don't. It's it's a mystery. Oh! So ah, is funny, because title of movie is Mystery Man. We are... we are. Uh, yeah, again, I love how, how there's... On every podcast you listen to, when they're reviewing a movie, uh, not everyone, but often, you'll have, like, the mystery of, like, who's going to be on it. Like, we have a special guest on today. Where do you hear who it was? As if it's a radio show that you've just accidentally tuned into, and you didn't see the title. Like, yeah, not a podcast where you specifically read the title and downloaded it. Yeah, so uh, yeah, we're doing 1999's cult classic, uh, Mystery Men, which I'm really excited to do because yeah. this movie has been on my mind for 19 years. This movie is 19 years ago, 19 years old last week. That's crazy. Wow. That's yeah. crazy that that would be the case. I feel so unbelievably old. I think it's a movie, and correct me if I'm wrong, that would work almost better today than it did at the time. I, I'm i inclined to agree with that, yeah. It was, because, I mean, one of the big things it does is it comments on superhero tropes. But at the time, there weren't that many superhero tropes out there that the public was really familiar with. Certainly not yeah, to the degree had to, that we've got nowadays. You had to be a fan of comics, to really appreciate mm -hmm. the film that was there. If you didn't know X-Men and you didn't know the Avengers and your only experience with superheroes really on the big screen were going to be the, probably the first two Richard Donner Superman films and the four Tim Burton Batman films and then Wonder Woman, The Incredible Hulk and Batman 66. That's kind of all that the general public, non-comic book fans would have known about at this time. Mm -hmm. This this movie, what it's satirizing, isn't even there. The Sphinx, as a Obi-Wan Kenobi-esque Professor X character, has no meaning to the people mm -hmm. watching now. To me, and as a comic book fan, and I know you came a little later to the comics game, but watching it as we both did this week, it's clear that these are tropes that they're making fun of from the comic books. But in the terms of the average filmgoer, it would have been lost in them at the time, and largely was. 
Uh, this film cost $38 million to make, coming out in 19, or sorry, $68 million to make, coming out in 1999. Worldwide gross of $32 million. Oof. So this film was a, a, an unqualified bomb. I do yeah. wonder Although if over- 60% on Rotten Tomatoes, like the movie's solid. Yeah, it's and I think it deserves maybe a little more than 60%. We'll get into it, but I think that it's a film that largely holds up really well. And because of the cartoonish, much like the Men in Black films, because of the cartoonish nature of the effects to begin with, the change in special effects quality between then and now is not as stark as, let's say, a film that was trying to take it seriously. So yeah. I think that I think that it largely holds up and I think is maybe even funnier now than it was at the time. Mm. That being said, there are going to be many things to talk about. Uh, would it be okay with you, kind sir, if I tried to attempt, off the top of my head, a plot synopsis? Let it begin. In a world, <laughs> in Champion City, there is one superhero of note, and that is Captain Amazing. Captain Amazing stops all crime and has effectively stopped all crime. There is no more significant crime left. Only the lowest level of criminals are there, including criminals robbing a nursing home. But who's there to stop them? Not Captain Amazing. Not yet. No, it's the Mystery Men, which is not what they call themselves. Mr. Furious, the Blue Raja, and... Sorry, Mr. Furious, the Blue Raja, and the Shoveler. All three of which are people who may or may not actually have powers. Mr. Furious at one point stopped a bus. The Blue Raja has trained himself to be an expert at throwing forks, and the shoveler hits people with a shovel. They don't do very well against said robbers, and they encounter Captain Amazing, who does save the day. They, feeling dejected, leave, but Captain Amazing finds out that he has lost his Pepsi endorsement. Strangely, we will find this film has not lost its Pepsi endorsement, as we hear the word Pepsi about a hundred times. He's lost his Pepsi endorsement, and has decided to free under his other alter ego, Lance, his nemesis, nemesis, his nemesis, Casanova Frankenstein. In freeing him, a threat is brought to Champion City and Captain Amazing goes missing as Casanova Frankenstein steals him away. These mystery men decide that they need to stop Casanova Frankenstein from doing his dastardly deeds. So they hold, what else? Tryouts, bringing with them, of course, the spleen played by Paul Rubens, Janine Garofalo's bowler. We have uh, Kel Mitchell's, uh, or is it Keenan? No, it's Kel. Yes, it's, it's Kel, Kel Mitchell's uh, Kel Mitchell's Invisible Boy, um, and uh, of course the mysterious Sphinx. All of them, after tryouts, go after Ca- Casanova Frankenstein to save Captain Amazing, but unfortunately, Captain Amazing is killed because of their incompetence. Licking their wounds with Mister Furious, now leaving the team, they train in montage, and then Mister Furious rejoins. They lay siege to Casanova Frankenstein's lair, beating his minions and finally him and saving the city, although they weren't able to save Captain Amazing, which was their original idea, and becoming finally the superheroes they knew they could be, not knowing what to call themselves, they leave as a reporter looks into the mirror and thanks these mystery men. And credits. Well done, sir. Well done. Thank you. I'm a little out of practice. You know, the X, the X-Men three podcasts that everybody has loved so far was recorded months and months ago and then it's been probably two months since we recorded x2 so we're just a little rusty as we're getting back into the fall and i don't know i felt like you actually i felt like you streamed like 
you streamlined that one better than uh, than before. I mean, there was stuff you left Thank out, you. but it was it was stuff that was less Thank consequential you. to Thank the main. You. I thrust. feel good. I feel good about it. Thank you. Big fist bump to you. Yeah, sir. I mean, okay, I know there's so... there's some there's some Tom Waits fan out there who's just like, how could you forget like the most crucial part of the film, which was Tom Waits as the guy providing the weapons? But uh, you know, that's kind of the same as people who were pissed that Tom Bombadil was left out of Lord of the Rings. So you know, and you at do? the same and at the same time, one might be very very angry at me that one of the frat boys weren't mentioned. Of course, played by Michael Bay. What? It's absolutely. Terrible. Oh wow! Look it up. Yes, one of the frat bass played, but actually a lot of cameos in this film, right? The film starts off with the uh, with the siege on the old folks' home, and who's leading the siege? But Howard Stern's former co-host Artie Lang is leading the siege, eating cake and destroying the mystery men. And I was like, "Hey, <laughs> I love that." That's it's like, the, wow, because because that meant something in 1999. In 1999, getting Artie Lang was a thing. Well, 1999 was an interesting time, right? Because Batman and Robin came out in 1997. And that was the last real superhero movie. And it was, and deservedly so, we're going to get to it eventually, hated. Just full-on hated. People did not mm-hmm. like that film, despite the fact that it was financially successful. So it's become a little bit of a cult classic in recent years, which is interesting because I tried to rewatch it. And it's as bad as I remember. It's not even camp funny. It's just, mm-hmm. it's trying so hard to be camp funny that I can't laugh at it. Um, it's more flop sweaty. So... So it was a weird time because 1999 also, if I correct me if I'm wrong, that was also the year of The Matrix, was it not? And that was also the year of Star Wars Episode One, was it not? I believe so. That was pretty close to it. So this comes out in August of the same year, and it is one year before X-Men's going to hit. X-Men's going to hit the next year. And the superhero film genre was done. It was over. It was gone. So this coming out... In, when you have this resurgence of superhero-esque characters, of course, the Jedi being superhero-esque, and of course, the Matrix drawing from anime and comic books, certainly, this comes out as a, as a full-on super, or superhero film drawn from the Mystery Men comics. Really, the Mystery Men appeared in the old Flaming Carrot comics. Now, have you ever seen Flaming Carrot? I have not. So Flaming Carrot was a comic that came out in the late 70s and into the early 80s. I know this because there was one issue called the Junior Carrot Patrol that I got a hold of. And it was right around the time when the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles were coming out. You had a a bunch of indie stuff that was coming out at the time, some of which became big, like the Turtles and others of which, you know, didn't, like, you know, Yusaki Yojimbo and stuff like that. Um, At least, like, mainstream the way the Turtles or, you know, Marvel stuff would. So... Mm So I had a copy of this, and at one point it was worth quite a lot because it was just such a collector's item to have. It was sort of, sort of what uh, like Johnny the Homicidal Maniac and Lenore were in the late '90s. Were were what mm-hmm. these were in the '80s. But even at this point, the Mystery Men were kind of never a big thing until it reached this. Much like the Men in Black, and of course, I'm, I don't remember if this came out before or after the first Men in Black. I want to say after. Um, but the Men in Black had just come out from a dark, or just come out, or was going to come out from a Dark Horse comic. Of course, you had the Mask, which is a giant hit from a Dark Horse comic. So you have Mystery mm-hmm. Men trying to capitalize on that—the same idea, right? That it's a, it's a comedy within the comic book realm, a pre-Deadpool, a PG-13 pre-Deadpool, if you will. Um, mm-hmm. And we're going to get some pretty famous people to do it. Yes, and at the time, you didn't like. The question is, Is did you not get hotter than this at the time, or was this right before some of these people really broke? 
I feel like this was at the beginning of Ben Stiller really breaking hard. Um, like it was, a, he was a known name uh, at the time. Well, he had the, he had the Ben Stiller show. He'd had the Ben Stiller yeah. show, and Janine Garofalo um, was in the Ben Stiller mm-hmm. show. Like so, it's like so. Um, I at least I saw them on the. Uh, you know, when I saw the trailer, I was like, oh, it's Ben Stiller and Janine Garofalo. Like these, these were not, they were not all stars, but they were also not complete unknowns. Now, Jeffrey Hank- Rush Hank- was, Jeffrey Rush was huge at the time. I yeah, think this comes right after Shine, just right? Come out. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, um, as well as, I mean, William H. Macy, who has never, to my recollection, never not been, uh, you know, huge. Macy's such an interesting guy. Um, in in what he does because he always kind of seems to play William H. Macy and sometimes he's evil Macy, sometimes he's funny Macy, sometimes he's very serious Macy, but he's just so regular. If that if I could, does that make any sense? He's, he's just he's such very kind every of man. A, yeah, and he does it incredibly well. Huge theatrical career. Like in the theater, he's a god. In the theater, he's you know if you get a chance to to see a recording of Oliana. Um, by David Mamet, he's he's phenomenal. Of course, he was also in uh, Glengarry Glen Ross, um, and it was also joined. Now Hank Azaria, at the time, we all knew as uh, as the neighbor. I forget the neighbor's name. I know his dog's name was Murray um, from uh, from Mad About You. He was doing all the voice work on The Simpsons, which is now what he's primarily known for. But at the mm-hmm. time, he also was a, a a significant recurring character on Mad About You, which I think had just gone off the air. Um, just like the year before. So we have, you know, Keenan and Kel was big at the time. And then you've got a bunch of people that we know now um, that weren't known at the time that are showing up in this film. Of course, we have uh, The Waffler. The Waffler, fresh and crispy. Bad guys are history is Dane Cook. Um, and of course, the uh, Pencil Man, whatever the Pencil Man guy is, and son of Pencil Man, uh, that's Doug Jones, who is now Lieutenant Saru on uh, Star Trek Enterprise. He was also, uh, I forget the name, the fish guy in Hellboy, which I'm sure we'll eventually do. He was uh, the lead gentleman in Buffy with the big look. Um, so this guy is, is a major guy now. Um, you have mm-hmm. the Disco Boys, led by Eddie Izzard. Um, like, just which huge names casting. are showing up. Yes, uh, and against all type for Eddie Izzard, right? Like it's it's you know if you ever listen to Eddie Izzard show, this is not the executive transvestite that you might expect. This is totally like him doing what he can. He's just a brilliant, brilliant guy. I think that's that's the thing. Actually, for me, is knowing knowing Eddie Izzard's body of work, this actually plays completely into his type. But I think that's just because his type is so all encompassing. Yeah, um, um, it's interesting. So, this so, is not the only. This is not the only supervillain that Eddie Izzard will go on to play. Uh, oh, since he's tell? also the supervillain uh, in. Uh, oh, I've completely forgotten the name of it, but the uh, the Uma Thurman superhero. Uh, my girlfriend was a superhero film. Oh, uh, my super ex girlfriend. My super ex girlfriend. Yeah, Eddie Izzard yeah, is the supervillain in that. I've well. never seen that movie. I look oh, forward well, to doing that. Going we're gonna, to, yeah, we're going to have to cover yeah, it because it is technically a superhero film. Uh, then, then you will hear us eventually. Really, I've never seen the movie. I was really interested in seeing it at the time, and then I became like, like much like Hancock. It was like, eh. Um, I loved this film when it first came out. We'll go beat by beat uh, in a moment, but I loved it when it first came out in that it was, you know, we had just gotten The Matrix, which showed us what you could do in terms of an action superhero-y type film, but this was the most superhero-ish type film I had seen. This could easily be 
like an issue of Excalibur is like right around that tone. It was funny, mm-hmm. but it was absolutely a comic book film, and they were playing enough of it seriously that I that I dug it as a comic book film. I see it more as a satire now, but at the time, I wasn't that young at the time. At the time, I was you know what twenty three. I I got um it as a superhero film not as much as a satire it was a superhero film that was also funny i dug everything about this film when it first came out it was the closest that i was going to get to the superhero film that i would want of course now i get the superhero film i would want every you know 4 months there's another one that's amazing mm-hmm. so so at the time it was slim pickings and this really hit the spot for me but not for audiences which is which is really interesting let's go through the film what um, i was uh the, what I was struck sure. by when I was watching it, just in terms of general impression, uh, less on the superhero side, but on the comedy side of it, um, I was realizing, I was like, oh, this film really came out in the transition period between 90s-style comedy and uh, and uh, the the new millennium comedy, which is, yeah, yeah, which is much more, like, 90s-style, I mean, towards the end of it, yes, you had, like, Seinfeld, uh, and that sort of more that uh, not coarser, but just sort of more regular guy sort of weird situation humor. Nineties um, comedy was pretty wacky. I mean, Jim, like when I think nineties comedy, I think Jim Carrey, like Ace Ventura, sure. Austin is Powers. one of the yeah, yes, and they were and don't get me wrong, they were all hysterical films. Um, but the new comedy that's happened in the millennium that we're still really been pushing more towards, it's more sort of that it's a combination of snarky with at the same time, either injecting the, uh, in, if the nineties was about injecting the sensational and the extreme into ordinary situations, a lot of the comedy after that is more about injecting the ordinary into extreme situations. Uh, like the shoveler is the perfect, and the discomfort, the shoveler is the perfect example of that. The, uh, Because you've got a superhero, but is just this most, the normal, you know, the, just a normal sort of guy. A lot of the conversation style is very, it's very down to earth, just like indie style. Like, uh, there's a lot of, I'm, a lot of these scenes were clearly sort of improv um, which was not as much of a comedy thing at the time. Although now that's like half the comedy films out there are, you know, you go with a rough, uh, guideline and then let the actors do what they do. Yeah, well, and I think that you also have the beginning of, you know, Ben Stiller changed the face of comedy. And I want to say that, like, really clearly. If not for Meet the Parents, I don't think, and I think Will Ferrell's got some of that, but his is more like, like, let's take the joke and tell it a hundred times till it stops being funny and then starts being funny again. Ben Stiller mm-hmm. was the master of uncomfortable, like, uh, I think without Ben Stiller, you don't have the hangover. I think you don't have the whole idea of, of I think Zach Galifianakis doesn't show up if Ben Stiller doesn't show up first, where you just mm. have, ah, oh, is this going to happen? Oh, and it's just like, like you're laughing because you can't believe that what's unfolding in front of you. And I think that you get some of that here. I think Mr. Furious's um, disdain for everything, and it does have the snark. It's mm-hmm. still got, you know, you're, you're in the tail end of Gen Xing, right? I mean, that's, the, that's you've really got the, 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 Generation X, just kind of like fu attitude about the world from Garofalo mm-hmm. and Stiller. They they are two peas in a pod, and even like the love interest Claire Forlani. You know, I know her. You know, I know her. I never saw um, Benjamin Button, but I know her mostly from Mallrats, and it's still sort mm-hmm. of that 
that you know we're you know we're better than you, we're smarter than you, meh, 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 kind of kind of attitude that that you get the Gen X angst on top of the Ben Stiller discomfort, and then yeah, you have you know at the same time the spleen, which is absolutely you know the spleen belongs in an Austin Power movie, so oh, yeah, you have this absolutely. this mishmash, and in the midst of it, you have Jeffrey Rush. Who, oh, Castle of Frankenstein is, is wonderful. This guy is game for anything you throw at him. I love Jeffrey mm-hmm. Rush from the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. I think that as much as people praise Johnny Depp, Barbosa is my favorite character in those films. Barbosa is just having such a great time. Like it's just—it's mm-hmm. not just that it seems that Jeffrey Rush is happy to be there. It seems like Barbosa is just happy to be there, and I mm-hmm. see a proto version of that in this film. So I guess let's start, since we're talking about him anyway, let's start with Casanova Frankenstein as a character and in a performance. Uh, what is your mm-hmm. first impression of the character and the performance given by Mr. Uh, very favorable in both ways. First, I mean, Casanova Frankenstein is uh, one of the coolest names I've heard since Hercules Mulligan. Um, and in its own way, I think, I mean, it's, it echoes, even though it came out before X-Men, it really echoes the idea, casting Jeffrey Rush in this character sort of echoes the idea of casting Ian McKellen as, uh, Magneto, like getting a really good actor who's known for his super serious classical work just to, to play the bad guy. Um, and, uh, I, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to, to put your thumb on exactly what it is, uh, that is driving uh, Frankenstein. He's kind of just like they never really delve too much into his motivation or everything, and that's fine because he's just he's just sort of there and weird and not in an off-putting sort of way. The fact that he is both incredibly articulate, while at the same time, I love the fact that since he's been in uh, an insane asylum for twenty years, he's still coming right out of the late 70s, so he's still totally into disco. Like, it's not just the Disco Brothers who are into disco. It's clear that, like, that is also something that Casanova loves. Oh, um, I love that. The, and I love that he's silly. It's it's interesting that he's, he's silly and also menacing, but he doesn't seem to be a parody. He's playing it, like, mm-hmm. like he's playing it almost straight. Like, just one, yeah. maybe one notch above playing it straight. But the fact that he is, you know, he could just be a ha 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 villain. But the fact that he is Casanova as much as he is Frankenstein, mm-hmm. let's just put it that way. Yeah. Like the fact that he he wants to indulge in dealing with the 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 underlings, the Batman esque you know bad guys that surround him, his obsession mm-hmm. with 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 disco, and also like being your typical you know British baddie that he's doing is is so unexpected. And so, is delicious a right word for that character? It's close to it, yeah. Um, what it's, what's interesting is that, and don't get me wrong, I love seeing sort of comic uh, films where you take a really good uh, classical actor and just have them chew the hiss, chew the scenery uh, with their villainy. Uh, like Kenneth Branagh in Wild Wild West, which was not a great film, but to me, watching Kenneth Branagh just completely overindulge in the terrible script that he was given uh, was a delight. Whereas with this one, Jeffrey Rush does not chew the scenery. He play he plays this weird character. I mean, he plays the weird, but he doesn't amp it up. It's just, he's just 
you know, sort of there. And, you know, and he just, you know, he never really raises his voice. He never goes into massive histrionics. It's just sort of, he's very chill. Yeah. No, I love it. Um, what is your impression then uh, by the opposite of chill, Mr. Furious, a Roy by Ben Stiller? Um, I'll, I'll jump in first by saying the character at the time I remember really, really, really finding funny. I now have seen enough of Ben Stiller doing the thing that Ben Stiller does that it mm-hmm. seems very much like here's him here's him doing that thing it's he's when he's doing Roy when he's doing Roy it seems very much like Ben Stiller at the airport in um Meet the Parents where he's like I just want to do what I want to do and what I want to do is and it's just sort of that cadence of mm-hmm. of him doing that but there's yeah, something of the uh of the th- of the main three, uh, I do feel now looking back on it, like er, during the rewatch, Mister Furious was the least compelling of the three main heroes to me. Uh, Which and is part of it is because, because part of it is because we've just seen a lot of Ben Stiller. Yeah, and Ben Stiller can do things other than that. I've seen bits of the Secret Life of Walter Mitty. It's really good. I've seen him in other things that where he can do mm-hmm. things other than this thing. But this is the thing that he knew how to do really well, and he did it, and he did it fine. He did it really well. I think the character of Mr. Furious is much more interesting than the portrayal of Mr. Furious. I feel like Ben Stiller is kidding to the point where, you know, this is the one character that maybe needs to be kidding slightly less. So... You know, temperature rising just didn't didn't grab me this time around the way he, that and it did. And I felt as a like... character, like he was the one that just seemed sort of. I mean, and this sort of does go into the Gen X awkward sort of thing. Was his his motivations and his just demeanor? They were just a little bit more petty and mundane. Um, I mean, the shoveler, who I am going to go into great detail about how much I love. You know, there is a real nobility driving him. Um, you know, the blue Raja, uh, underneath the, the mama's boy sort of thing and everything, there is also this really great, there's a desire to, uh, you know, there's a, you see the desire, the really likable desire for superheroism in it. Whereas, I'm going to, let's, let, let me bring in a description of the blue Raja and we can use these two in juxtaposition because I think they are the opposite of each other in the way that I feel about them. And again, it's going to sound like I'm slamming Ben Stiller. I think he's incredibly talented. I think he changed the face of comedy, and I think he's still doing excellent work, and you can find it. That being said, I think that the Blue Raja is an underwritten character that is not all that interesting. He throws forks, and he lives with his mom, and that makes him uncomfortable, and there's nothing else to him. It is a character that is elevated by a semi-over-the-top performance by by um, Hank Azaria that has a lot of heart to it. By I would completely comparison- agree. He plays it. He plays it. So you're right on the, uh, yeah, on the page, uh, the Blue Raja just wasn't as interesting. But just the the sheer charm and likability that uh, the Blue Raja brought or that Hank Azaria brought to the character. Yes, the juxtaposition here, of course, being that Mister Furious is a character that on the page, and not just on the page, but conceptually, is more interesting, is given more of an arc, has more humanity, has a story to tell, and has the real existential question of, do I have powers or not? Do I deserve to be here or not? And is more interesting, and I think is underserved by Ben Stiller making the decision of, 
I'm going to make f- I feel like Ben Stiller is making fun of Mr. Furious and yes. I feel like like Hank Azario is not making fun. He's he's having fun and he's doing comedy but he's not making fun. He's not passing judgment on the Blue Raja when he plays the Blue Raja whereas I think Ben Stiller has decided this guy's a doofus. And I'm going to play him like a doofus kind of the whole time. I could totally see that. The Because well, it's also Ben Stiller, his style of comedy that also it's, you know, it sort of grew out of or it's very similar to uh, to the Seinfeld style of comedy. And the whole point of Seinfeld is that none of the main characters are likable people. Uh, that was part of its brilliance. Um, but when you have uh, but when you have a film where the main character is a Seinfeld type, then it does, it loses some of that drive. Cause you want to, I mean, that's the thing at the end of the day, like the moment where the blue Raja, you know, felt supported by his mother and just sort of suddenly felt empowered. Like I felt my heart lift. That was this nice moment when, uh, you know, when Mr. Furious got the girl and she kissed him and said, you know, just you go be you. And I was like, Oh yeah, that's, that's expected. Like it didn't, it didn't yeah. hit me with the same kind of emotional thing. And it doesn't help that despite having an amazing, I think Claire Forlani is a, is a is is not just a very very beautiful woman, but has a captivating face. Her face is just captivating so. to look at. Despite that, I've never liked her as an actress. I've never dug her as an actress, and I just feel like I feel like she's pretty good here, but she just doesn't. She doesn't give me there's no i feel no chemistry i don't care if they get together and when he yeah gets, when it's he... her character as a whole was just straight up utilitarian um yeah. like honestly if they were making the film now i don't even think that that character would have been in it um like yeah. it very much felt like in the i was watching i was like oh yeah that's right because when we had superhero films in the 90s there always had to be a love interest which yeah is she's, not the, she's, case the she's the vicky Vale of this movie um yes i think that also Maybe they were afraid to give her. I don't know what it is. It seemed a, eventually. It seemed very much. I think Mr. Furious for me is best exemplified by his attack on Casanova Frankenstein's car, which was it was funny when he started slapping the car, and then he kept slapping the car, and then he was like trying to pick the little thing off the front. And by the end, I was just kind of, yeah, okay, good, good enough. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't care at the end whether or not he had powers. Or not. I can't tell you whether or not he had powers yeah. or not, or if he learned anything. And I, it's not like it left me with some sort of artsy, like, ooh, did he have powers? No, I just don't care. You know who I do mm-hmm. care about? In what I think is her, her, I'm given that she's the only other female character, her best performance that I've seen her do is Janine Garofalo as the bowler. She's spectacular. Mm-hmm. She's really good in this movie. Yeah. Um, She's the right kind of Gen X, I think. I think she, you know, she is coming in, you know, she's got REM and uh, she's got REM and Depeche Mode playing on her headphones, coming in with that Mm -hmm. bowling ball, the the bowling ball. And, and, you know, I I knew this girl in college. I knew exactly who this person was and she exemplified exactly what I would expect, playing it with a lot of, a lot of snark, but a lot of heart too. She's Mm -hmm. not mean you know uh spleen i don't think we'd write spleen this way now because i think you know hashtag me too but she handles him both decisively powerfully 
she mm-hmm. turns him down at, with with his advances very you know she makes it clear that what he's doing is not okay same time she's not mm-hmm. unkind or rude you know there's not enough beer in the world i'm sorry like she's yeah. she's she shuts him down but she's not like spleen you're the worst i hate you it's not like that at all she is the you know, her relationship with her dead father's skull in the bowling ball is mm-hmm. interesting and it shows like she gets more chemistry with that bowling ball than Ben Stiller does with Claire Forlani, and I think it says something. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I mean, I think pretty much you saw you summed it up really well. Uh, I was actually gonna to bring up the both the awkwardness, uh, you know, the awkwardness and datedness of the oh look, it's the gross guy trying to put the moves on the uh, you know trying to put the moves on the uh, you know on the on the woman. Um, and to this film's credit, at least they did not go with the trope of you know, the spleen getting her in the end, thankfully. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I think you summed up, you summed it up real well. I very much enjoyed, uh, Garofalo's performance. What did um, you think of the spleen then by comparison? The spleen then it was, well, it's nice to see Paul Rubin again. Like this was really, cause there was a good period of time that Paul Rubin had vanished from the face of Hollywood and with, you know, understandable reason, uh, you know, we had seen him very briefly as a cameo in uh, in Batman Returns, Batman in Batman Returns. Interestingly, yeah. playing Oswald Cobblepot's father, he has mm-hmm. also been on Gotham playing. Guess what? Oswald Cobblepot's father. Ah, that's funny. That's great. On multiple on uh, multiple episodes, he said he had an entire story arc playing. And if you have mm-hmm. have you watched Gotham at all? Have you gotten to check that out at all? I have not yet. No. So the guy who plays the Penguin looks an awful lot like Paul Rubens. So casting him as Oswald Cobblepot's father is such an amazing, uh, an amazing move that it must be called out for its brilliance. It's so that's cool awesome of a choice that they did yeah. that. Anyway, yes, Paul Rubens uh, always um, game, the, right? Yeah, this, isn't he? He's, yeah, huh? I said he's always he's game what? for whatever comes to him. Yeah, and his, I mean, his style of comedy is, and the spleen exemplifies this, it's a very uh, Jerry Lewis style of thing, where he's yeah. playing a character that is meant to not be likable. Like, it's clear that nobody in that world, you know, it's an anno- It's a character where the comedy comes from how much he is irritating the other characters. Sure. Uh, which can be, uh, at least for me, if not done really well and carefully, can be extraordinarily off-putting. Um, and this time through, like I was expecting to, to not like it. Um, but, uh, it, it did not bother me. Um, it, this, you know, the spleen was not my favorite, uh, thing in the world, but there was a, there was such a boyish charm to it. Uh, I, and I, I I absolutely love the, I love the, I love the idea that it was of all the people who derived their powers from a gypsy curse, that it was his. Well, and I love that what Paul Rubens does so well, because he always plays annoying characters, is mm-hmm. he make he gives them a heart. So yes. while he's annoying, and while, yes, he's got the flatulence jokes, and I'm going to show this movie to my kids. I think this movie is fine, all the way down to like eight or nine. I think you know the, if you can yeah. just kind of make them shut their eyes for um, Captain Amazing's death, which I think is probably the hardest little, watch in the movie. Yeah, it was a little... Honestly, I remember saying things like I. It was a little too gross for the rest of the film. Yeah, um, but minus that, it would be good. That 
you care about you like you get that he feels bad. You get that he that his feelings are hurt that he's not included and and mm-hmm. so he manages to make you care for him, which is great. Okay, so we got to talk about Invisible Boy. Um, not a character that I dug very much, and I think a lot of that has to do with I just don't like Cal Mitchell. It just comes down to mm-hmm. that. I don't like his performance. I think the character could have been interesting. I think in other hands it might have been interesting. Um, of course, I'm glad that there's a, a person of color in in the film and in a substantial role. I think that you know if I had to recast this film, I could see myself. I could see myself putting um, putting Michael Sarah in the role of the Invisible Boy, and I think he would be yeah. Astounding. Michael Sarah would be fantastic in that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's you know it is it is your traditional '90s superhero team in that there is you know one minority character and one female on the team, which is mm-hmm. problematic in the extreme. Your tokens. That, that yeah. is the case. Yeah. Um, now, uh, so, so I would want to make sure at the very least that there was representation happening in the casting, but boy, would someone like M- Michael Sarah or any actor could give that vulnerable of a performance. I'm not feeling yeah. it at all from the actor. And I think it makes it so that I find his entire plight and story boring. I'm just, it's mm-hmm. dull for me. Yeah. I, uh, um, I don't have much more to add to that, but I would like to, but talking about the, uh, um, talking about diversity in this film, um, I feel like that leaps right into one of the reasons why the Shoveler is hands down my favorite character into this, which is the, uh, which is a uh, just straight up interracial marriage with uh, with interracial children, and no yep. apology, no explanation, just this is how it's always been. No comment. Um, no comment. And, no comment. And and the thing is, the is that the Shoveler is so. He's so blue collar American that uh, him coming home to a black wife does hit you out of left field at first, and I love that. Especially at the time, especially the in the nineties. Especially in the nineties, yeah. Um, I remember when I remember when I was first watching this film and thinking, "Wow, that was that was a cool choice." Um, yeah. And uh, but yeah, talking about the heart. Uh, what really makes the characters likable is who are the ones with the most heart. And, uh, man, I tell you, hands down, my favorite line in the film has got to be, uh, you know, the Shoveler's thesis statement. His, You know, because everyone needs a reason to be a superhero. Um, and his is just so clear. He's just, you know, he's like, honey, God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel, I shovel well. very well. Uh, yeah, it's just. It's wonderful. I, it, and and it's just so and it's delivered with such utmost sincerity and simplicity by uh, by Macy. Um, you know, there was he, uh, he had, the, I, the the way he handles Mister Furious as well. Just a lot of heart, a lot of kindness without being weak. He's not you know it would mm-hmm. be easy for that character to seem wishy washy, and he's not. He's not milk toast. Yeah. Um, I mean, actually, in watching this, the th- the thing that broke my heart was. You know, when he's saying goodbye to his wife and he's saying, I, I have to go do this. And she says, I'm not going to be here when you get back. And he says, I know, I understand that. I like it's it's but he's like, but I have to. Um, it's clear he's not happy about the fact. And you also very much get the sense that it's like, oh, this is not a man who was going out to seek glory, leaving his family behind. It's he has weighed the cost and realized that even if it costs him his family, no, he actually has to go protect the city. Um, it's just he's a uh, he's a uh, he's 
a great epitome of lawful good, uh, in yeah, my ideas. No, without a doubt. So we get then to the Sphinx. Um, this actor I've seen in a million things. I don't have, a, again, I normally am staring at a computer when I'm doing this, and I don't know his name off the top. I want to say Wes Studi, mm -hmm. but I might be wrong. Um, I think, I think uh, that's it, yeah. Uh, he is such a fun, not even an archetype, not even a trope. He's just a, a, mm -hmm. he's a caricature of this character. And yeah. if there's anything that I love about Ben Stiller's performance is his reaction. I like him with um, Ginny Garofalo and I love him with the Sphinx. I love the two of yeah. them together because the Sphinx is absolutely giving, giving you exactly what you would expect him to and being called out mm -hmm. on it by this is, this is, post scream right this is two years after scream and this is the same oh, yeah thing so the concept are... of the concept of uh meta commentary was really first becoming a thing yeah they they're giving it to you while also commenting on the thing that they're giving to you i mm -hmm. love that if if you do not master your fear your fear will become your master that's what we're gonna sure, say that was right? what you were gonna say wasn't it but not, 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 not necessarily necessarily I mean, yeah. <laughs> just Wonderful. Yeah. And I love how in the middle of their conversation at the diner, they go, plus, I hear he can cut guns in half with his mind. And they're like, I don't know. I don't know. I, I really? And then, of course, they're about to be executed. And that's how he What's announces the very first his thing he does? Yeah. He cuts all the guns in half with his mind. It's incredible. Yeah. It's so it's good. Awesome. <laughs> so funny. Um, so, yes, the, the it's easy to forget <laughs> the spaces in this film. Yeah. It's um it's easy to forget that the Sphinx is in this film because it's not about him, but it was, was the minute he arrives, I feel like the film shifts into high gear, and I love him the mm -hmm. entire time he's there. Interesting that he doesn't do anything. He, he like goes to the battle with them. He doesn't die, as mm -hmm. far as I remember, does he? No, he makes it. No. So yeah. So why doesn't he not battle with him? I don't know because he's the Sphinx. Moral he's very support. mysterious like that. Yeah, he's yeah, very he's yeah, he's very, very mysterious. mysterious, isn't he? Yeah. Um. I love the non-lethal weapons. That's also really mm -hmm. funny. That a guy yeah. who just makes non-lethal weapons. Again, going right to Batman 66. This is like right out of that playbook. Like, why does Batman not just have a machine gun? You know, as he did mm -hmm. in, you know, in 1989's Batman. Um, well, and I think it's the, it would have been the, what made that character work is it wasn't so much that they nodded at it once. It, like, because he first really introduced the concept where he says, oh, nothing that I make is lethal. Um, but you don't realize the extent to which no, non-lethal is such a core aspect of this guy's philosophy until um, the until uh, Mr. Fury says, oh yeah, there's this old Ginny in the uh, in the junkyard. And he's like, that is the greatest non-lethal military vehicle that's ever been made. Yeah, that's Like amazing. specifically <laughs> what makes that military vehicle so awesome is that it is a non-lethal military vehicle. And then, of course, the rest of the movie plays out, you know, as you would expect to it. It still is a formulaic comic book movie. Like, much as Scream was, it is both giving you what... It is the Scream of superhero films, I guess is what you could say, is it's giving you the superhero really films, without yeah. a doubt, but is also sending up superhero films. It's What's interesting is, I think the most interesting scene in the film is the scene at the bar. And I think that when you look at Suicide Squad, where all their characters of... of you know, mismatched people find themselves sitting at a bar just talking. I think that that yeah. is, you know, that owes Mystery Men. I think a lot of films, I think Deadpool, Deadpool owes Mystery Men. I feel like even films like Iron Man, you know, if you think about it, one of the things that Marvel learned how to do was inject that normal comedy that you're talking about, normal people in extraordinary situations, is what made Iron Man, and really what has made Marvel 
Tick, Marvel has always been about, no, I don't want to say always, I would say the Black Panther is sort of fantastical and Thor mm-hmm. most of the time is fairly fantastical. But by and large, and even by Thor 3, this is the case, it's just about like these are, they're all kind of normal folks doing their thing yeah. who then are well, also it's superheroes. The, it's, well, one of the things, I mean, it's the same thing that made Firefly such an effective show was the kitchen table phenomenon. You want to see yeah. these, ki- yes, you want to see these characters going off and doing great things, but you want to see them just chilling, you know, kicking up their heels in, you know, in the kitchen chatting yeah in the diner in the bar in the you know Mm -hmm. just hanging out and i think that eating shawarma yeah and i think if you look at if you look at the modern successful superhero films and even what dc has tried to do somewhat you know as they course correct with justice league and wonder woman um like you you realize this is what people want they want to see their heroes be real people and this Mm -hmm. is the first film that did it like it's Important to note that you never got even the Superman films, which tried to dramatize Superman's plight. He still it never feels like he's just a he's one of us. Yeah, and this is the first yeah. time they did it. And this is you know there've been twenty something Marvel films now. It's it's more successful than Star Wars, and it starts with I think in in large part Mystery Men. I'd be very surprised to find. You know, if the people who wrote the early incar- incarnations of the Marvel films, I'd be very surprised if they did not all see Mystery Men at one point, mm. because there's this one seems other... like a template of things to come. Yes, please. Yeah, there. I agree. There's one other character we haven't touched on yet, which I really want to because it also delves into like the overall point of the film. Um, Captain Amazing, uh, yes, played wonderfully. The smarm of Greg Kinnear is fantastic. Um, and I mean, certainly there's the, you know, let's talk about the, uh, you know, just the straight up, uh, it's not new anymore, but at the time, the new comedy of, of commenting on the fact that, no, that, uh, you know, wait, is Lance Hunt Captain Amazing? Uh, you know, and the Whoa. show saying it's like, well, no, Lance, Lance Hunt, Hunt wears, wears glasses. glasses. Yeah. Captain Ca- Amazing and only William, doesn't like And what, only William H. Macy can deliver that line. He only he yes. only the shoveler <laughs> yes. can deliver with such earnestness that that it it again it's it's funny and his the way he plays it the idea that the that the lead hero is kind of you know crap on toast I love yeah. I love that I love yeah. that and I'm trying well, to think of that's... another I'm trying to think of another situation where that is so clearly the case where the this hero is a Going in, well, I think it it goes into it's, it's sort of that Gen X thing. Um, and you know me, I always, you know, frequently with superhero films, the question is, what does it mean to be a hero? And one of the things this film is saying in a very none too subtle way, and it, in a way that actually probably hasn't been really said that much before, is, um, I'll tell you what, a hero isn't. It's not somebody who does it just for the popularity and the fame. Um, there is. By having Captain, I mean, from the fir- his first appearance with Captain Amazing, and you see all of the uh, all of the logos plastered all over his uniform. Uh, it's brilliant because it says exactly who this person is right off the bat. Um, I also think it frames and- the film really well. The minute you see the logos on him, you get that the film is a satire. And I actually think mm-hmm. it's really important that if you if he came in and he wasn't wearing the logos, I think it would be easy to not quite understand 
you know, is this film serious? Is it a legit comic book film? You know, without him wearing the logos, this film is Dick Tracy. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like it's 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 over the top. Sometimes it's dramatic. Other times, I think this him wearing the logos lets you know in no uncertain terms you're watching something that's a satire. It's not a spoof. It's a satire. So get used to that tone. So I think the logos are super important for the tone of the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but uh, the but also in it, there's strong Gen X commentary on this is the. I mean, and it's still coming out of the the vast consumerism and materialism of the '80s and early '90s of the, you know, this is the, you know, your blonde-haired, blue-eyed, all-American boy who, you know, is living out the Reagan dream of, uh, you know, he's a hero, but yes, he's also getting all these money from endorsement deals and all these things, and, you know, just calling out that that is not really at all what it's supposed to be about. Well, he's the establishment and mystery men, both in the, you know, in what they are in the film and the actors they chose to play them are, are all anti-establishment that's the idea right Mm -hmm. and i think that you know we had we had a few years later captain hammer i think is based very much on this sort of character i feel like i've Mm -hmm. seen this sort of character a hundred times before and yet i don't i can't tell you exactly where i can't tell you where it's a a general character that like the trope is clearly very vivid in my mind but yeah captain hammer is one of them um but yeah i'm trying to think if there's a time before captain amazing that I could actually that I actually saw it on screen. Yeah, um, I, I think that's that's what it comes down to. Is it, it's you know it is in satirizing that character again coming two years after Batman and Robin. Like you have to remember, mm-hmm. you know, Batman came out with the Bat credit card in in Batman and Robin. Oh, so, you're right. Yeah, yeah. So this is like as a send up of that. Captain Amazing is because while Captain Amazing has the glasses. What he really is a send up of is is Bruce Wayne, like that's what mm-hmm. he clearly is supposed to be. Oh yeah, billionaire and, Lance Hunt. Yeah, yeah. So I think that it's again Kinnear. I love Greg Kinnear. Can I tell you that 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 I you know he was uh that that he was he not the host of the Daily Show before John Stewart? I think no, you're thinking was. Craig Kilborn. That's Craig Kilborn. He was Craig the host. Kilborn. He was the host of something, was he not? I'm sure that he was um, the host of a thing. Oh, I'm sorry. Talk Soup. Same thing, right? He was a host to Talk Soup. Was Greg Kinnear on Talk Soup? He was, a, he was on Talk Soup before the guy who had the skunk hair, um, who then came before Hal Sparks. Yeah, he was absolutely the host, host to Talk Soup. Um, but then, you know, if you watch As Good As It Gets, you know, this guy can break your heart. This guy is an astounding actor. But this level of smarm, this is what he does so well. Yeah. And he does it oh, so yeah. well here. I right. am... 91. He, he is, was the first host of Talk Soup until 95. I I know random trivia about stuff that doesn't matter. That's what I do, Arthur. That's what I do. That's what you do. So, so <laughs> you, you drink sca- and you know useless things. On a scale of one to five, oh, I got to come up with something. On a scale of one to five golden pinky nails, what would you rate Mystery Men? Ah, uh, well, let's see. I'd probably give it a. Mm. I would give this one a three with the caveat that three does not three is not the same as just a straight up 50 percent like Rotten Tomatoes rated this at 60 percent. And that's probably what I would give it. It's it was a good movie. I in no way felt like my money was wasted, even after I paid three dollars to rent it on Google Play a second time. There are some wonderful performances in it, um, like 
the two hours spent watching this movie was two hours well spent. Um, and then I just immediately go on with the rest of my life. Um, so I am going. I would say I would say I would say three fingernails because that means a solid film. If this movie came out today, I would give it a solid three. But I want to. I'm going to boost it up to three point five because we've also given a movie movies boost based on their importance. It's worth Good point because it did pave the way. It was a groundbreaker. It's worth noting that we said, hey, let's do Mystery Men. So the argument that you move on with your life is not exactly true. This movie came out 19 years ago, and it stuck with us for 19 years. Now, I've, so I watch a lot of movies, and I watched a lot of movies back then. That's before I had kids, you know, and, I, and a lot of quote-unquote good movies, right? But we're not sitting here talking about, you know, The Ghost in the Darkness or The Devil's Own or other quote-unquote good movies, you know, or What Lies Beneath. Great movies from the time that have not Mm -hmm. stuck around in our heads. We are talking about Mystery Men because Mystery Men came at a time where there was nothing else of note for for comic book films coming right before X-Men and coming after the disaster that was Batman and Robin. And it gave us a template for superhero films to come. So I have to say the fact that it stands the test of time, I would put, interestingly, here's an idea. I think that, that Mystery Men is more memorable still than Iron Man 2, than Thor 2, I think it's as memorable as like the Captain America the First Avenger almost. It's it it, it is Captain America the First Avenger is an afterthought for me now when it comes to the mythos of Captain America. It's how it started, but it's never the one I really want to watch. Mystery mm-hmm. Men I would want to watch more than I would want to watch Captain America and it started a lot. So I'm going to give it a 3.5. I would almost bring it to a 4, but I think I'd be giving it too much. It has enough flaws that I'm going to bring it down to a 3.5. But I, I think that it's Fair A, point. a solid film, and B, if you are into, you know, you're listening to a podcast about superhero films, if you are watching the history of the superhero movie, I think Mystery Men is is key watching. Um, so I'm going to give mm-hmm. it a 3. Or at the very least, it would be it would be included in the list. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think yeah. that if there well, that are... Makes sense. Interestingly, yes. I think... Uh, I look forward to when we review Captain America because I'm I'm one and I will fully admit I'm one of the few people my I actually preferred uh, First Avenger to um, to Winter Soldier uh, like of the three that's Captain America films really the original is actually my favorite yeah that's really interesting um, that, it, again I think that for me as an afterthought you know I call it an afterthought because it it's the one that doesn't take place in the rest of the the rest of the MCU you know it's it's way back then mm-hmm. so it feels like you know. I want the I want the things that are now, but I get you know I get that if you're into a particular type of storytelling, that it would be one that you would that you would dig, and I dug it too at the time. I think that mm-hmm. I like it more every time I see it, so I think that it has that going for it. Um, yeah. But I, uh, you know, we have not worked out what our next recording is going to be, but it will be soon. We won't have to wait as long as we've had to wait. Yes, indeed. Thank you for letting our my puppy Wesley Wyndham Price interrupt once or twice. Yes. I appreciate that. Um, I would also like n- to uh, real quick. Let me uh, just since we've got a couple minutes left here, um, just a thread because uh, a while ago you asked me sort of just like oh what's been going on in your life and inter- like on the podcast you asked uh, what what other superhero stuff is have you been following. Um, I'd like to give just a quick shout out to something I've been watching uh, recently, uh, which is interesting from a superhero genre, which is a a new or newish to me uh, anime show called My Hero Academia, which is essentially the anime 
version of Sky High, which is another film I enjoy. Interesting. Uh, which I think, and it, it like essentially it's just an anime about about a world where tons of people have superpowers, and it's a high school where heroes are specifically being trained. Uh, it's interesting in a number of ways uh, that Mystery Man actually kind of reminded me on about because a lot of the superheroes in that world have endorsement deals and like for them it's about the fame and about the celebrity and it's about not just doing right but also you know marketing your brand and uh which is interesting and also for anyone who's into anime at all it is a really cool way of seeing how the eastern world views and interprets what essentially was a a trope that originated in western culture the concept of the superhero like as in the caped crusader type of thing is definitive western uh originating thought but it's really cool to see uh a very different take on it uh like the way that they would approach it in japan so uh so that's just a What's recommendation i'm gonna throw out there for my hero academia and where can we find it uh you can find it it is on both uh uh, it's definitely on Hulu, uh, both in dubbed or sub version. Uh, and I think uh, the first season is also on Netflix, too. Uh, interesting fact that the main superhero in it, a guy called All Might, is dressed all in, like, red and blue, very akin to Captain America. And his main power every his main power is a smash, but every time that he, that he uses it, he just shouts out the name of some random American state beforehand. Like the first time he uses it, he calls it the Texas Smash. And then the next time it's Delaware Smash. Like it's That's just, really funny. Uh it's just this random thing. Yeah. I uh um I am looking forward to coming up uh, of course we are gonna have some films coming up very, very soon, like Venom, which we are gonna yes. have to see and comment on. I just watched a film called Upgrade. Uh, which uh, is could be a superhero and antihero origin story that it looks like Venom is the comic book version of kind of the same film. So I'm very, very mm-hmm. interested in seeing uh, in seeing Venom. I was not excited at all. The first trailer did nothing for me at all. And I don't like the idea of this Spider-Verse happening without Spider-Man. I'm not a big fan mm-hmm. of that as a concept. But Venom looks fun. I think it's going to be a, a fun watch. And I look forward to watching it with you and, and talking to you about it. But for now, yeah. uh, my name is Justin. Uh, my name is Arthur. And hey there, true believers. Stay super. Now that you've finished the show, be sure to subscribe so that you never miss an episode of the Totally Super Podcast. Also, if you like this, you should head over to geeksradio.com or search Geeks Radio wherever you listen to podcasts. There you can find Trek Off, the not-safe-for-work Star Trek so podcast Trek with Justin off, and Search Alexia. for Pop-Off, search for Geeks Radio, and just thanks for joining us. This has been a presentation of Light Entertainment.